Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. This is episode 560, where we're going to dig into Bootstrapper news. It's news that relates to you as a Bootstrap founder, mostly Bootstrap founder. We're going to talk about things like deciding when it's time to hire someone, uh, how to think about which role to hire next, talking about location and how it can force productivity. I chuckle because um, this is just a longtime hack of mine. And, and one of my guests today, Tracy Osborne, had a tweet a couple weeks ago talking about being on a plane and how uh, productive it makes her. So today I'm welcoming Tracy Osborne, the program director of Tiny Seed. And Anar Volset, the general partner of Tiny Seed and my co-founder in this amazing epic adventure, this journey that we are on. The two of you have been on so many of these episodes now. I almost wonder like, yeah, what should I, how should I reintroduce any of you? What, what is new? What do the people need to know? Or, or, or maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should just be like, yeah, I'm once again with Tracy and Anar. The end. <laughs> just don't, <laughs> don't call attention to it. There it is. <laughs> Yeah, Anar's in the UK. He's actually just an hour outside of London. I think I mentioned this in the, the outro of last week's episode, but um, we're getting started on raising our European tiny seed funds. So if you are an accredited investor and interested in potentially investing in EU companies that tiny seed would be investing in over the next couple of years, you should hit them up, tinyseed.com slash invest. Yeah, and I don't even know if it's a, because it's an EU fund. I actually don't know if the same accreditation rules apply. So you may you may want to be able to give us money even without being an accredited investor. We're in the early stages. <laughs> you can tell this is all still being researched. Yeah. In other news, before we dive into the, the topics, I want to let you know that MicroConf is back in person. MicroConfs are starting in September. Right now, we have five scheduled in five weeks. That was a bit of a I'll say you know an effect of of the pandemic that we had to condense that. But we have. One day local events in Portland, Oregon, Austin, Texas, Boston, Massachusetts, and London. And then we have a two and a half day growth event in Croatia. It's our third and final year in Croatia. That'll be the first week of October. So I think they're going to sell out fast based on just pent up demand and, and what I'm hearing from folks. So microconf.com if you want to get on that list and have a chance at tickets. Who else is excited for in-person events? Oh my golly. So excited. So excited. Get me out of here. Get me traveling. <laughs> Super excited. I can't wait. I need to go. I'm I'm just sad that we have to do capacity constraints on the place. There can only be so many people. I'm like, come on, let's do more people. More people. Yep. I totally agree. And that's what we're looking at. Like right now, the we're at a half capacity or something at Croatia. But we almost expect like the way things are going, it'll probably open up a bit more and we can sell more tickets later. But yeah, I'm excited to do it. So let's dive into our first story, which is really just Tiny Seed is making our first hire in what, over a year and a half? Because Xander started in September. Yeah, so this is our first hire. We're a small team. We don't grow very quickly on purpose. Like that's, it's like a, a forcing function to, to do great work and to, to figure out when it is, you know, we need to, to make that next hire. We'll link the job posting up in the show notes. We're hiring a remote community manager who's going to spend time uh, in the microconf community and also in the tiny seed community. But the reason I wanted to call this out is we went through a whole process to decide like, should we hire someone now? And which role should we hire? You know, it's not always obvious of like, oh, we, we need another developer right now, or we need a project manager, or we need a customer success person. Like, Tracy, you, I mean, you were part of this process, obviously. What, what were some of the, the things that we did along the way to figure out, oh, this is the role we actually need to hire? 
Yeah, I think my the first warning sign was like we've gotten a lot done as a small team, being that it's just you know we have uh, just four people across <laughs> Microconf and TinySeed, and that worked really well for a while. But I started feeling like you know balls were not being dropped, but I knew that there was like, if I, I didn't have as much capacity as I used to. And so then it was like, okay, why do I not have capacity? What are the things that I'm doing? Like what tasks could potentially be offloaded or would I like to be offloaded in order to increase capacity? So that's where it kind of started with me. I just, I wasn't thinking about hiring per se. I would just, just started creating a list. And as I was going through my daily, weekly activities, I was as things popped in and I was watching out for things were like, oh, that's potentially outsourceable. That's something that I could teach someone else to do. And so I, I just basically built this whole list. And then I talked to you. It's <laughs> like, hey, Rob, <laughs> guess what? I'm, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed right now, but I've already created this list. Take a look at it. And I think Xander was kind of doing the same thing on his end, right? Yeah, that was the thing. Xander came to me and said, hey, I just have microcomster coming up, starting to plan them. I have a bunch of stuff that I'm doing over and over. And I think that was the commonality between you and Xander is it was like, there were some admin tasks that we could hire a VA to do, but there was also some higher level stuff where it's like, we need someone who's a step up from a VA in essence, in terms of skill set and focus. And you were keeping a list. I asked Xander to keep a list. And then when I compared the two, it was like, it wasn't a one-to-one mapping, but we could start to fit it together. And there's still a bunch of stuff that a community manager probably won't be able to do that's on those lists, you know, that we'll have to keep doing for a while. But the way I think about it is like, you know, as we started Tiny Seed and, and you know, continued with MicroConf, you make a lot of it up as you're going and you just figure out the process. But by the time you do the process, second, third, fourth time, it's like, wait a minute, I, someone else could be doing this and I could be working on more ambitious things, you know, more creative things that kind of drive it forward. A&R, you have thoughts on, you know, obviously both in, in terms of this process, but also advising, you know, all the tiny seed companies. People come to us a lot and say, should I hire? Who should I hire next? How, you know, how do you advise founders when they come to you? I think very often, particularly bootstrap founders end up hiring too late. Like it ends up in a situation where they're like, oh, I'm overwhelmed, and then only when they're super overwhelmed do they realize they have no choice but to but to hire somebody. I think often people should hire a little sooner than that. Like we were talking to one of the founders two three months ago, they finally was like, "Should I hire? I don't know. Like I'm so busy." And like I was asking, what kind of thing were they doing? And in this case, they were doing customer support, like forty percent of their time. And I'm sorry, but if you're the founder, then it's valuable for you to do customer support. Sure, I mean you want to be closer to your customers, but it's not valuable to the point where you're spending like almost half your time doing customer support when that's something that's super repetitive, something that you can definitely hire someone at a reasonable price to do. So I, I think it comes with that bootstrapper mindset that like you want to be you want to be frugal in things. But I also think you, know, you only have so much time. And if you're spending your time on suboptimal stuff, that's not it's not a good thing to be doing. I would agree with that. And that's usually the first thing I recommend people Hire for, it's usually not outsourced, but it's just hire for is that support role. Even though, yes, as the founder, you can probably give better support in the early days, but as it becomes repetitive, I find that founders don't give better support than someone who's really good at it because you get tired and it's you get bored and it's not as creative. And still handling the exceptions, the one-offs that get escalated to you, I think is I think is the way to go there. And the other thing, I was talking to a company yesterday and they've hired two support people. They're all dialed in there. And the next hire is a developer. Because right now one founder is doing all the code and when they go on vacation, he has to take a laptop because if the site goes down, he's the only one that, you know, it's, it's getting that, the bus factor out of there, right? 
Yeah, I want to say this also applies for design. Um, I was talking with founders yesterday as well, and doing your own design and all that work for front end and user experience and trying to get your onboarding flows and whatnot. That's also something I find founders like hold on to as long as possible. And it's good for them to have a good understanding about how things work, but there's that's also something that's very easily outsourceable and probably should be outsourced to someone who has like more of an eye or a specialty in that area to kind of work on those very important like front end experiences that the users have. But I think on the flip side, I think what somebody sometimes just wants to hire for too soon tends to be sales. <laughs> like there's a lot of the time founders are like, particularly technical founders are like, I'm not good at sales. I know we should do some more sales. I just want to hire sales. And some case, the flip side of that is like, until you have like a founder driven, like if the founder hasn't already done some sales that they can then train people up on, then sometimes that's too soon. Yeah, I like to think of it as like the moment it becomes pretty repeatable and wrote, and this is whether it's sales, customer success, support, product development. In the early days when you're going commando on a product, it's like all over the place. I, my code would be everywhere. And then eventually I'd refactor it, I'd get all the deployment in place. And then it's like, wait a minute, I could bring another developer in here. Like that's the point of, of each of those where I start thinking about, I want to help bring someone in. And then it's just a matter of budget, right? It's like do as a bootstrapper, mostly bootstrap, like what do we, you, you don't have the budget to hire in all those roles. So it's figuring out, you know, which is going to, you know, leave me doing the most high value tasks. All right. So obviously if you're interested in, you know, in coming, working with Anar Tracy and Xander and I, head over to the link. It's at dynamitejobs.com and you can uh, check out the role for a community manager. Love to hear from you. Second topic of today is one I alluded to in the intro. We have a tweet from at Tracy Makes on Twitter. That's Tracy Osborne. She says, this is uh, last, oh, about a week ago. Can I just be thrown on a plane every time I need to be productive? Geez, I'm working at like 10x speed. You want to expand on that first and then and then Anar and I will weigh in because I have so many thoughts on this. Yeah, this is my this was my first trip outside of Canada. I mean, obviously due to the pandemic, I went over to California to go see my that's where I grew up and saw my family and all that. And my first time on a plane in a year and a half. And I used to I've been on planes a lot and I think that it's such a good hack. It's it's so nice. My husband kind of disagrees with me. He he'll be the, the kind of person that wants to play games on a plane. For me, it's all about paying for the really expensive Wi-Fi, but then I'm trapped in the tube where the Wi-Fi is kind of crappy. So I can't really do much with it other than like go through all the emails that I've backed up and do all like the little tasks that have been on my to-do list for so long. I can't leave my seat. I can't go get a snack. I can't go play with my pets. And for some reason, it's just like the focus goes through the roof. Also the having a limited time period, knowing that I'm going to be on the plane, you know, there's going to be Wi-Fi availability for say max three hours kind of helps me time box everything I need to do and gets me more efficient as compared to when I'm at home, especially since I don't have an office anymore and I'm working from home and it's just like my time is free form. I can go get a snack whenever I want. I can take as much time as I want for a project unless there's like a, a deadline. It's just, I'm so happy to be back on planes and it's kind of a ridiculous way, but I think that a lot of people agree with me and that productivity can vastly increase on a plane. Anar, you have a tale of your own, whether it's working on a plane or a location hack that you've used. <laughs> well, what I would not recommend is uh, to try to be productive is to, um, you know, fly to London and then have be super jet lagged as a heat wave hits where there's no AC that with your kids around in quarantine. Like that's not that's not particularly productive. Hey, wait, that's what you're doing right now. 
Exactly. This is the most productive I've been for a week. So I think time boxing thing does make sense to me, though. It depends on the kind of task, like to sort of check off a bunch of different things. I think I think it works well. I, I still do set aside or at least until very recently set aside like two hours every Monday in the afternoon when I'm like just crappy things needs to get done, just like checklisty things like sign this thing or you know, finish this bit off or, you know, just pay this bill or respond to that email. And I do tend to feel super productive when I'm doing that because I'm like, I'm not trying to do something super, super creative. I find that that kind of thing sometimes I can't do on planes, but just like just plowing through emails, paying a bunch of bills, you know, just clearing the the decks, planning things that that tends to work pretty well for me too. Yeah, one hack I've used, and this was pre-pandemic, but I used to, it was two or three days a week, I would spend half the day, usually the morning, somewhere not my, that wasn't my house or wasn't my home office. And sometimes if my kids were home, I would be like in the basement at a standing desk or I would, I didn't have a co-working space, but I would go to a coffee shop and get super caffeinated. And the new environment actually, for me, it just causes a whole different mindset of creativity and thought. And so again, I was doing that a couple days a week, not super cheap because I was, you know, I was eating out and buying coffee and stuff, but I haven't resumed that since the pandemic. But one of the biggest hacks that I completely stumbled into accidentally is during the winters, obviously in Minnesota, they're very cold. So we would sign our kids up for jujitsu, you know, at an indoor dojo. And I hated it because it's dark already, right? It's dark by like four or five in the afternoon. It's sometimes 10 below. So it's super cold, super cold. You load it up with the big of the face mask and the kid, you know, and every, it takes everybody 20 minutes to get ready. You hop in the car, you drive in the dark, the roads are slippery and you know, it's twice a week. And I would dread this thing, but I knew it was good for the kids, right? To get, that we'd get there, they'd get their energy out. It was a great thing. We started bringing, it was my iPad Pro with the keyboard. It doesn't have slack on it. It's like a separate laptop that doesn't have interruptions. And this would be six, seven at night. And I would open it up and the, the Gmail app, which is just like the iOS Gmail app, I could get through a like a week's worth of email. Something that would take me f- otherwise five days, I could do it in like 55 minutes because it was this forced, it was like Tracy said, it was time boxed. I, I couldn't do anything else. And I would just boom, 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 hammer through it, much like an airplane. And so this was cool because it was once or twice a week. And I started looking forward to it secretly, even though I hated the drive and the cold and all this. And it was the worst posture. I was literally sitting on a linoleum floor with my back against, you know what I mean? Like hunched over. You can't do that for very long, but I could do it just long enough to get this work done. Yeah, I was, that's one thing that I wish that we had an office because like the experience of say, if you're working with people in the office and everyone can like grab their laptops, go into a one of the rooms and just sit down and work together on like one task, even if you're not talking together or collaborating, but, you know, or like say going to a coffee shop, grabbing some friends, all going to a coffee shop, sit around a table and work together. You kind of get this like people around, everyone's working, everyone's, you know, being productive kind of energy. That's awesome. Our next story is from Engadget. Headline is Delta pilot sues the airline for allegedly stealing an app he designed. He's suing for a billion dollars, accusing it of trade secrets theft. Yeah, so he basically paid $100,000 of his own money to a software development crew to have a mobile app that would easily communicate disrupted flights, I think, to one and to each other, maybe. So some type of messaging tool. And he contacted Delta CEO, or at least according to this article, he apparently contacted CEO of Delta in 2016 after a computer system 
meltdown. You remember this when all the flights were put on hold, it cost the company 150 million bucks. And he told the CEO, hey, I have a solution for that. He had several meetings with executives and again, according to this, who gave him verbal assurances that they were going to acquire his app. According to Alexander, the pilot's complaint, Delta ended up telling him that his technology didn't fit its needs and ultimately launched its own flight family communication app in 2018. And he called it a carbon copy knockoff of the role-based text messaging component of his, this is in quotes, of his proprietary crew live, starts with a Q, <laughs> Q-R-E-W, he's not a branding expert, Q crew live communication platform. So now he's seeking a billion dollars, which, which feels like a lot. Anyways, I want to kick it over to you first, Anar. What are your thoughts on, on this situation? I mean, my first thought is like, how does he even know? Like, depending on where he is, his contract might mean that if he was working for Delta at the time, Delta owns the app in the first place anyway. So <laughs> that was my number one thing is like, what is the what is the IP assignments for all this stuff? He actually even owned it in the first place. That's probably my number one insight there. The second thing is, yeah, I mean, things change and like, it must feel sucky, but it's not this, this I don't think is super unusual, you know, like who knows exactly why they decided to do it or not do it at the time. I, I don't have, I have some sympathy, but, but kind of only limited sympathy. And I, I don't know that it's worth a billion dollars. That seems like what he's trying to do is to sort of settle out of court for a, for a reasonable amount rather than uh, thinking he'll actually get a billion dollars. That seemed a billion dollars seems a lot for uh, an internal communications app. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's it's interesting because when I read the story, I thought to myself, you know, legally, I don't think he has much of a leg to stand on because unless he can prove that they like stole patented trades, I mean, I he, he built software and you can replicate other people's software. There's no law against that. So there's there's the legal side of it. And then there's also the maker in me feels like this sucks and that's bullshit that they that they did that. But then also this is really told from, it, it only quotes from his complaint, you know, or his suit. So it's his side of the story. I'm curious to see, like, I've seen some of these things that are, that are written up on TechCrunch where I know both sides of it. And I'm like, you didn't represent this very well. So I wonder what was happening on Delta's side. Maybe the app was shit, or maybe there, there are all kinds of reasons why they would have just not wanted to use his version of it, you know, or not wanted to buy it that aren't, none of which are raised, you know, in, in this article. Yeah. And $100,000 of his own money is a really interesting number, I think. Before, for an app that would only work, it sounds like, on this piloting system. And so they ha he has to have Delta as a, as a buyer in the first place. $100,000 of his own money before pitching the app over sucks. Like, it sucks. It seems like, you know, I feel like a lot of people in this industry kind of know that that's not the way you're supposed to do it, but I don't think that's widely known. And so I can just see someone being very enthusiastic, getting this idea in their head. I can sell it to this company that I already have connections with. I'm going to put a bunch of money into it, but I'm going to get a bunch of money back. And then not going through the diligence, spending way too much money to develop an app. And on Delta side, you know, they have a team of developers. They have their own app developers. They have their own app and whatnot, you know, and I don't know if there was an NDA or anything like that or even that if that matters, but you know, show this app that could or could not work very well. It's very easy for Delta to be like, but that is a good idea. We already have our developers in house. Let's just build this. And you know, it's just I get it just sucks. I get, I kind of feel like it reads like someone who is really enthusiastic but didn't do a lot of homework in terms of how these kind of deals can go down. Yeah, I think that's a good good point. You know, as some as a founder listening to this. 
who could potentially wind up in the same spot. I think it's dotting your I's, crossing your T's. Like you said, having NDAs, making sure your IP is locked down and Patents. That's a whole reason why patents exist, I guess, you know? Yeah. I'm not sure if you can patent something like this. Yeah. That's the thing. And that's what I struggle with is it's like, just know that anyone can, it's not the software. We always say that, right? It's like the, it's the marketing, it's the brand, it's the, you either have to have something super unique or you need to have like proprietary marketing channels that you can own or sales channels because anyone can go replicate your software. Right. If people, someone had just replicated, in fact, we did have people who basically copycatted. Uh, I've had people copycat pretty much most of the apps I've ever built. But at that point, it then became a question of brand and marketing. Right. Could I secure the leads? And that's. Yeah. And he built us something that he couldn't market on his own because he was, he built it for just one buyer. And that one buyer said, nah, well, we're happy to do this our own. So I can imagine there was another situation where he built something that he could sell to multiple airlines or like, you know, drive a competition or something like that. But Developing just for one buyer in mind feels like a mistake. Yeah, I don't know that if it was only developed for Delta. I wonder if it could work for any airline. But then it's like, okay, cool. So go sell it to the other airlines then, right? That, that would be the next step to prove it. Next story is a tweet that I sent out about a month ago, and it seemed to resonate. It got a bunch of retweets and likes and stuff. So I just wanted to talk about it real quick because it's, it's pretty founder focused. The tweet is, in the early days, you're building a product. Once you've built something people are willing to pay for, which is no easy task, you work on building a business. Once that flywheel is going, you move on to building a company. Very few founders excel at or even enjoy all three stages. And so it's product, business, and company. I got some follow-up questions to that in in the conversation. Obviously, we'll, we'll link it up. But I was defining difference between a business and a company is a business is once you start looking at profit and loss, you have enough revenue that you can start hiring. It's still early stages. And a company is really when you, you know, you're starting to scale up. It's like you're starting to hit escape velocity and really build out an org. And the reason I tweeted this is I it just continues to be a theme. I hear it on podcasts. I hear it in, I have, you know, I have conversations with folks. I watch founders leave their company. They grow it to 20 million and then they step down as CEO. And people say, why would you do that? And it's like, well, because I love building product. And frankly, I overstayed my welcome. Or I love building products and a business, which I'm defining as kind of an earlier stage thing. But building out a company, building out an org is, it's a different skill set. You know, it really, really is. And that's often, you know, that's why 20 years ago, the venture capitalists would bring in adult, quote unquote, adult supervision, right? Founder would go out and then they'd bring in, you know, a seasoned CEO or COO or whatever it is. Anar, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I agree with this. I mean, I think it's very few people who are very good at, at both of it. I mean, I think in some cases, you see data that says, you know, founder driven companies are more valuable or grow faster than professional CEO led companies. And I do wonder whether that's just because founders of, you know, companies that are growing really fast are less likely to want to step away from it than companies that aren't growing so fast. I think in general, this is very true. I think once you get to a certain size, like your job almost becomes like HR, like it becomes hiring, like how do you source enough quality people to come on board and work for you and believe in the mission and all that stuff. Like I think, and I think a lot of people, you know, particularly technical founders don't don't enjoy that. Uh, they don't enjoy the sort of organization building that you'll need to do once you get past a certain size. Yeah, I feel like you have to change kind of like, where is your dopamine rush? Is your dopamine rush from 
building that product and seeing people use the product that you built by hand or you had a large part in building. And then you have to switch that dopamine rush to watching other people do that process. And like, are you able to take that joy from seeing other people succeed and other people build a product and kind of switch where your joy comes from the business from like enabling people and seeing the big picture things. And I feel like there's a lot of people who are unable or unwilling to kind of switch over where they get their joy, you know? So like there's people who make good managers and people who don't make good managers. And I think good managers when they're managing people take the joy of just like enabling people to do things. Um, and it kind of, I feel like that kind of broadly can be extended to building a company. I, I really like that point. I think that's accurate. I think that's true. I mean, it's at a certain size, it also becomes a question of like, instead of hiring a new professional CEO, that might be the point where you decide, you know what, I'm going to sell this business because I don't enjoy this, this stage anymore. And there are other people who could do better. Yep. And we, you know, we've seen examples of that. Jason Cohen with WP Engine, he built it up. And then I believe, and I don't know this for sure at this point, but I believe no one reports to him. And he's kind of like a, still works in the company full time, but he's like a, an advisor and does little, I'd say pet projects that probably diminishes what he's doing, but he's just doing projects he wants to do that he feels valuable to the company. Dharmesh Shah did the same thing at HubSpot. I remember asking him because, I mean, he and I met 13, 14 years ago. We were bloggers and then I moved to Boston and we were chatting at one point and I'm like, you're going to go public, you know, someday soon. Like, but you're a maker, you're a developer. And he said, yeah, no one reports to me and I can work on what I want and I write company culture docs and I think what's the next interesting problem that I need to solve for this company? I go do it and I don't have to manage people. And it's like at a certain scale, you can do that. I just named two massive multi-billion dollar companies in essence. It's harder to do that when you're making 20 grand a month, right? But the point is that you hit a certain point in your company's maturity where you do have to make that decision of, am I the right person for this job anymore? Because in the early days, the CEO's job is to make sales and make product, whether you're doing it yourself or, you know, we're working with a co-founder or you have an early hire. And then in the, you know, the middle days, a lot of it is hiring, making sure there's enough money in the bank and it's managing stuff. And then like to Anar's point, once you're company building, it's so much HR, maybe it's fundraising, maybe it's you start getting into things where like legal becomes a bigger issue. There's either incoming lawsuits or like just managing GDPR and like all the stuff that you don't want to do when you just want to build a product to make 10 grand a month. All of that stuff becomes, you know, a full-time job plus plus entire teams of people doing them. Yeah. I want to go back to my point though, is like, it's, I think it's funny because yesterday in Tiny City, we brought on your wife, Dr. Shirley Walling, to talk to us about kind of psychological issues. And she made the point about, forget exactly how she phrases it, but it was kind of like being mindful of the joys and then finding things that you're not taking joy in that you should be taking joy in. You know, and I feel like if things like legal, like those things aren't really fun, but like being mindful of like, okay, this thing is not fun. I don't like this part of the business but I'm going to view it as the full, like full ecosystem of the business. What is this legal work, this fundraising work? What is this enabling to do? And then kind of thinking thoughtfully about, is this a good thing? And if that's a good thing, hopefully it brings you some amount of joy. And so therefore it becomes a little bit enjoyable at, um, in that. So if you don't find some of these tasks enjoyable, you know, maybe that practice will help you. It doesn't mean that you have to then outsource it or hire someone or whatnot. So I think there's a little bit of a balance there that people can can do um, in order to make some of these lesser loved tasks more fun. Yeah, I agree. At the same time, 
you can get caught in a trap where you're doing things that you don't like for too long and that becomes burnout. So yeah, you have to have it's this, a balance. It is. It's, <laughs> it's like you can do it for three months, six months, nine months and tell yourself, hey, I have to do this. Eventually, you, like in my experience, like you have to hire someone to do that. You have to hire it. You have to outsource it. You have to figure out a way not to do it if you really don't enjoy it. You have to build a business and a company, not just build a product. And fire yourself. There was another tweet. I, I fire, as a CEO, you have to fire yourself from all the jobs over time. And it's just picking what's the next job I'm going to fire myself from. All right. Next story is about Facebook. It's from Bloomberg.com. Facebook users said no to tracking. Now advertisers are panicking. So iOS uh, now gives permission or it asks for permission of whether you want Facebook or any app to be able to track you between apps. I'm opting out of all of that, by the way. I get the prompt that, you know, every time I open whatever, Instagram or Facebook, and I say, no, only allow it in this app. And I guess only 25% of people are allowing themselves to be tracked across apps. And so, you know, how does this relate to listeners of this podcast? I think that if you are making Facebook ads or Instagram ads, or really any ads work that need that kind of cross-pollination, and obviously this is mobile only, so if you're making web work, that's less relevant. But I think the effectiveness of the tracking and I think the effectiveness, you know, basically the cost per click or the cost per lead is inevitably going to go up because of this. Anar, you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised this was coming. It's sort of the war between the business model that Apple has and the business model that Facebook and advertisers have. Like, Apple doesn't make a lot of its money from advertising. So, you know, they're always going to err on the side of how can they sell more phones? <laughs> and and part of that is people are starting to concerned about, you know, being tracked and people, you know, retargeting and things like that. And Apple is always going to be, I think, a company that that errs on that side. I think it ends up being tricky uh, for advertisers in the end, because like particularly like things like when you're trying to do things like retargeting and figuring out conversion and like what adverts work and like, you know, how do you, where did, where did this client come from? Even for, for smaller bootstrappers can start to become a problem if you have less and less data about like what are your acquisition channels that actually are effective. So if this becomes more and more of a trend, then uh, I can see it really impacting people's ability to, to optimize their, their marketing. You end up spending you know, more money, but less efficiently. On the flip side, the consumer too, like you end up in a situation where I know people who prefer targeted market, you know, advertising, because that means that the stuff they see is more likely to be relevant as opposed to like, you know, diapers for a 55 year old man or whatever. I think, uh, I think there's a balance there. But um, yeah, I can definitely see it being an issue. You know, people have been saying for a long time that if you're not paying for a product, then you are the product. And so this change through Apple is the kind of, finally, it's Apple saying like, hey, you are the product. They're, they're telling people directly you're a product. And I think the whole, that saying was well known between webby people, but wasn't really known by the general public. And so now it's that awareness going out to the general public. Oh yeah, Facebook is free or now they're free you know, hopefully quotes. thinking about, yeah, exactly. Now they're thinking like, oh, that's why it's free. You know, I do agree with Anar is that like, it's it comes across so negative. Do you want to be tracked? And no one really wants to be tracked. You know, if it was, I think that these ad networks, I think I've seen this in some places where it says, hey, we can give you more personalized ads. I think that those those warnings, those better waves of kind of spinning how things are going and why the tracking is there. Does Apple block it? Apple did Facebook no favors on this because I believe it's an Apple generated message and they were just, you kind of By feel the like way, they were this is tracking you. Yep. They <laughs> yeah. stuck the knife in and then twisted it on that one. 
Yeah, you're, you're in the bathroom. It's tracking you. You're doing something, you know, all these like things and it's tracking you and it's like very scary. So everyone's going to opt out, of course. I agree. Like, you know, Instagram is its own thing. I There was an article recently talking about how Instagram is the new Sky Mall. And I totally agree with that. The products in Instagram are nuts. But it, it is kind of impressive when I'm in Instagram and how targeted those ads are to me. And I have bought, I would say that I wasn't normally a person that would buy off of ads. Like maybe I'm a little bit of a brat and I see ads and I, I in Facebook or Reddit or whatnot. I don't, I deliberately don't click on it because I'm being a butt. For some reason, Instagram, because it is so targeted, actually has worked many times. I have bought many things off Instagram ads. So, you know, I, I can see overall this, hopefully this direction going towards more targeted ads in that, in that way. And these prompts maybe will have an evolution over time. But right now, I think we're in a really weird period where people are realizing that they are the product finally. Last story of the day is from Square. It's not a story. It's a release of their business banking, which is squareup.com slash banking. I think it's you there. Square banking, your payments, banking, and cash flow working as one. I I love this. And I, I don't use Square, but I love the fact because banking is so last century. Like everything I do with any bank is a disaster. The mobile apps are terrible. The process, the are you f***ing kidding me that we have a 2 p.m. wire cutoff to send money the next day in this day? Are you kidding me that that is what we're dealing with, right? Given that we have crypto that I can send you, you know, in the next 15 seconds for pennies. So anyways, that's my, that's my banking rant. But given that we, you know, we have Brex credit cards, which I really like using. I love their mobile app, Mercury Bank, Square Bank. Now these tech enabled startup banks that are actually getting traction. I'm surprised Stripe has not entered this. I can't imagine they are not also entering this space given that they want to increase the GDP of the internet. I'm super bullish on tech enabled modern banks. Remember when the web first came out in like the late 90s? They had these banks come out. It was like Web Bank and Bank.com or whatever. And they didn't have branches and you could like mail, you know, you'd mail them a check to deposit it because there were no mobile phones to deposit. And, and it was a it was a bit of a clunky experience. I feel like the tech has caught up and that that we are going to see like actual really solid banking products that make our lives easier, much the way that like we used to use taxis and then Uber and Lyft came along. And it's like, no, it's it's a net win for us as consumers. I don't want to go into all the, you know, on the, on the flip side of that. But I feel like banking is going to hit that, especially for business banking, which has, you know, historically sucked. Tracy, you have thoughts? I wish I was as enthusiastic as you are. I, I, I'm very enthusiastic about these products. I feel very pessimistic about this because I feel like there has been such innovations in banking that I've been seeing pop up since the beginning of the internet. And is it because big banks have so much lobbying like to change like the regulations that are in the US? I've, I can't remember any ones that popped up before, but I know there's like several like banking apps and credit cards and things that were that popped up because I was like, oh, look at all the things we can do. Like it's a new world. We can have all these like, you know, fancy tech products and then they die and disappear. And because there's all these regulations and lobbyists and everything that's going on. So I'm, I hope I'm wrong, <laughs> but I look at these things kind of pessimistically. I will continue to use them because I want them to to succeed, but I'm also looking at them as like this is there's a very good real chance that these things are not going to pay out. For example, Wealth Simple in Canada, they were launching a new 
like it's a whole savings account and investing thing. And then they're like, boom, we're going to have debit cards. You can use this as a bank. I signed up for it last, like as soon as they announced it, I signed up for it a year ago. I still don't have a debit card. I still can't use those features. I finally moved my money out of that side of the business because I'm like, I don't know if while simple, they've obviously run into problems trying to finish out building out this whole banking platform. It's like, I'm going to continue to use them, but I see so many problems happening that like I'm looking at it be, being aware that it can just go away. Anar, what do you think? You bullish or you bearish? I'm bullish. I mean, like, one of my good friends uh, runs Mercury, so yeah, <laughs> I can't really be bearish. <laughs> He's going to call you up and be like... Yeah. I do think the challenge is, um, I think banking has very low churn. That's what I think. I think basically people leave a bank when they die most of the time. And like, I think that's what the sort of inertia there with like, well, it's my money. So, you know, I care a lot about my money. So do I really want to take the risk of going to some newfangled thing that hasn't been around as long or I'm going to stick with, you know, the horrible mess that is the Bank of America and their like 1992 website and all their stupid fees and things. I think that's the main challenge for some of these things. But I, I actually think that's why like going into business banking first, at least makes more sense because you're like, OK, I'm going to start when you start a new business or, or a startup, then, you know, you need a bank account. And then that's when you're evaluating, you know, potentially new things. It's not exactly tied into your own personal like flows of money that's been going into the same places for years and years. So, so I'm a fair bit more more bullish than uh, than I think Tracy is. I usually pop up in here being the the optimistic person, confident person. And then I feel like this is the one time I've disagreed with you both. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all good. That's why there's three of us on here, right? Is to have that, that conversation. My take is that with Square behind it, that they have more of a chance than like a, a brand new startup. You know, you see the the folks who like kickstart a brand new credit card, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I, yeah, I just don't think you're going to do it to your point, Tracy. But once there's Square or Stripe, um, you know, and again, I have no knowledge that Stripe is doing this. I just, if I were in their shoes, I would certainly be thinking about this because business banking, it's like you're saying, Anar. I think Stripe should buy Mercury. That's what I think. And not because I just own the founder. I think that would be a good acquisition. Yeah, to merge it in. So anyways, I, yeah, I'm excited about this again, not just because business banking sucks today, but I, I just think there's so much more innovation to be had, including transferring money without a 2 p.m. deadline. And, you know, there's just, there's so much that that I think we're going to see in the, hopefully in the next five to 10 years, as long as, to Tracy's point, the lobbyists, you know, don't get in the way here in the U.S. So that is our show for today. Tracy Osborne, you are Tracy Makes on Twitter. And if folks want to see what you're up to, aside from that, tinyseed.com slash latest, right? That's our that's like our news feed. Yeah, we're, our applications are opening on August 9th, making sure I had the right date there. Applications are opening. We're doing two batches a year this this starting this year. So this is for our fall 2021 batch. So August 9th will be open for two weeks. And Anar Volset, E-I-N-A-R-B-O-L-L-S-E-T on Twitter. You are in the UK. Folks want to reach you. Of course, they should reach out to you, tinyc.com slash invest. That's right. Yeah, we're just uh, sort of ramping up fundraising for our European fund. And uh, yeah, I want to talk to anyone who's interested in uh, investing in this space. Awesome. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you. Yay. Happy to be here. And thank you for joining me again this week. It's always great to have you back next week. I have a pretty interesting interview, or maybe maybe I'll do a solo episode next week. So I'm going to be in Cancun at the end of the month. So I have to pre-record a couple of them. So I uh, hope you join me uh, as those roll out. And I'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning.